I turn now to our scripture lesson for today's sermon as we continue our consideration of Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians, or as we noted before, the second one, but the first inspired epistle that is in canon of scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 will be our lesson today. This is the Lord's word as he inspired Paul to write, and therefore this is God's holy, infallible, inerrant word given by him through his apostle. As we read now, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. And may, Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight as we pray in Jesus' name. And in the last two sermons that we've considered here from 1 Corinthians, we saw that the Lord chose to use the message of the cross of Christ to save the people that he has called and continues to call out of the world. And that message is, we saw a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, to the fallen man. The message of Christ crucified is nonsense. It's absolute folly. Moreover, It seems foolish to the fallen, unredeemed person that salvation from the judgment of God to come would be something applied to people not through their own good deeds, but through belief, through belief in a message and not by a person's own righteous works or personal moral improvement or a system of actions that they would follow. You might have noticed this, and it has been rightly said, Uh, that in one sense, there are really only two religions in the world. There's the religion that tells you that you get to your goal, whether it's heaven or nirvana or oneness with God or the universe or whatever uh, people think their spiritual goal is. You get there by following a system of behavior. You have a list of rules and you follow them. And then there's the religion revealed in Scripture, which tells us that we can't do that, that Jesus paid it all. It's not a religion of do, do, do. It's a religion of done. Jesus has done everything for us. And yes, we are called to righteousness, to forsake sin. And we see the power of God at work within us to do that. But we don't get to heaven by being quote-unquote good people and following a list of, of rules. We get there by faith in Jesus Christ, that so there's the religion that says 
you get there by earning your own way, and there's the religion, the true religion, which tells you from Scripture, you can't earn your own way, but Jesus earned it for you. And so it's by grace alone, working through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And so Paul said that God chose to use this message, which is considered foolishness by the world, this foolishness of the word proclaimed, he used that to save his people, and he sovereignly chose to do that for his own good purposes, and one of those purposes is to show how weak human wisdom actually is. Furthermore, as the gospel went forth into the culture of Corinth, God did not choose many who were considered wise by that culture, nor many who were considered or counted wealthy or powerful or otherwise influential in society. And he did that so that it would be apparent that as people were saved and their lives were transformed by the Holy Spirit working in them, that it was God who was at work. It was not human wisdom or power or persuasion that accomplished this. The aim of God's doing the things this way is to fulfill the very purpose of creation that we saw last time, which is that God be glorified. So in today's reading, we find the final section explaining God's choice of those things which are considered foolish and weak according to natural mankind. This is going to segue, as we'll see, Lord willing, uh, in the weeks to come, into passages about God's wisdom. Paul explains that it was for that very reason that God's power would be known, would be seen by his people, by the world, and that people would not be tempted to put their faith in eloquent and persuasive rhetoric, but in God, that he, Paul, made a point not to engage in the rhetorical styles of the Greek philosophers and debaters and orators. He explains his purpose in verse 5, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that that would be the case, so that the Corinthian brethren would trust in the power of God and uh, not in Paul's persuasiveness or wisdom or anyone else's. Paul, number one, did not preach God's testimony according to the style of a Greek orator. Number two, he concentrated on the proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified. Number three, he was not ashamed to preach Christ from a position of weakness. Fourth, he did not preach the gospel as a Greek-style rhetorician or debater. I'll tell you something of the distinction between an orator and a rhetorician here. Uh, There's a relation, but... Uh, Particularly, this would be a philosophical debater here we're concerned with in point four. And then five, he preached the gospel empowered by the Holy Spirit. Again, Paul's aim is that God would be glorified. That was his uh, point at the end of of last week's scripture lesson. That, That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. He said those words with the understanding that people should not boast in themselves or in great human teachers, but in God. He's not interested in anything that would point to his own glory. Remember, the Corinthian church, as Paul writes this letter, is factionalized 
between those who favor Paul's teaching style, it seems, and others who like Apollos better, others who prefer Peter, and they say, I am of Peter, and still others who maybe look down their noses at the rest and say, I am of Christ, which as we'll see later in the letter, that's the right, at, the right position to take, though they may not have had the right attitude when they said that. Paul says, essentially, I'm not interested in being your favorite preacher. Nor, I would venture to say, would Apollos or Peter. Of course, in our flesh, all of us want to be liked, but that should not be the aim of the preacher of the gospel. So I would think that Paul and Apollos and Peter would not be interested in being the favorite preacher of these people. Uh, They're not in competition with each other. All these faithful preachers have the common goal of glorifying God. That's what they want. They want to see these people glorifying God in Christ Jesus. And because he was not interested in his own glory, Paul made it a point when he was in Corinth not to show off his rhetorical skills or personal wisdom. He had them. You know, Read this letter and his other epistles. Read about Paul in the book of Acts. And this is not somebody who is ineloquent. This is not somebody who is uneducated or unintelligent. You'll see Paul was a very well-educated, intelligent, wise man. Both in terms of godly wisdom and in terms of his ability to debate logically on a human level. And that was used mightily of God for the growth of the church in the first century. But in the midst of a culture, like in Corinth where logical debate and fancy rhetoric were acclaimed on a level similar to how our culture would treat a professional athlete or a rock star, Paul refused to play up his own gifts so as not to take the focus off of Jesus. In other words... As he says in verse 5, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's another way of saying that your faith would be in God. He's not talking about God's power as if it's something removed from him. Uh, To trust in God's power means you're trusting in God to be powerful. You're trusting in God through Jesus Christ. That's the conclusion to which the previous four verses are working. That the Corinthian brethren would trust the power of God and not human wisdom. And so that would be the case. Number one, Paul did not preach God's testimony according to the style of a Greek orator. Being a skilled orator, a great public speaker, could earn a man a great acclaim in Greek society. So this might be hard for us to, to fathom, that culture. But think of of the way that people often view music stars in our own culture or great athletes in our society. I've never been somebody who's paid a great deal of attention to sports, but as many of you know, I was in uh, rock bands in my youth, and so I, I did know the, the aspiration of being a, a rock star. And, uh, I did know those people that I admired for their great skill in music, but think of, of that, of how you think of maybe your favorite music stars, or especially when you were young, and how you thought of your favorite athlete, people that you look up to, how our culture acclaims them, how in our culture they were, uh, they're in 
commercials uh, and they've endorsed products and this is just the fact that that famous athlete or famous musician or actor or whoever it is is endorsing that product makes people want to buy it. If we were living in a culture like Corinth or if they had had television back then, uh, it would be orators and, and philosophers who would be endorsing your favorite breakfast cereal or whatever. <clears throat> in places like Athens and Corinth, people flocked to public squares and amphitheaters to hear great orators speak. And uh, the difference between them and the philosopher, the philosophical debater we'll talk about later is that the orator didn't actually have to present you with a compelling logical argument. He just had to sound beautiful the way he spoke. And that's what people were there to hear. They wanted to hear beautiful words spoken beautifully, well-crafted statements. It was considered a great recreational pastime. But Paul says in verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, when I came to Corinth, right, did not come with excellencies of speech or wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. As Luke tells us in Acts 16, 17, and 18, but Paul came to Corinth after a time in Macedonia where uh, things had not gone well as we would prefer them to go for ourselves. <clears throat> now, they went really great for the church and its growth ultimately. But in Macedonia... He was beaten, he was jailed, he was generally rejected. As I think one preacher I heard a while back said that Paul, especially in Macedonia, uh, didn't need to ask where the hotel was when he got to town. He just needed to ask what the jail was like because that was where he was going to end up. <clears throat> but despite those things, thriving churches were founded at Philippi, at Thessalonica, at Berea. And these become great centers of mission work from the church afterwards. Well, he next went to Athens, which was still a great center of philosophical debate. In fact, uh, Athens was basically otherwise a backwater at that point, uh, but it was still considered a great uh, place of learning, a center of learning. You might think of not a great center of government, not a capital city, not a, not a place that is a a great center of culture or of, uh, or of financial power. But think of a college town. Maybe a college town that has several universities in it. That's something like what Athens was like. It was a great center of learning because of its history and its reputation. And there Paul had debated with philosophers, but as we see when he left, there were only a few converts to Christ. The Athenians were willing to listen only so long as Paul met their standard as a good public speaker. And they, for the most part, rejected the gospel, despite God's, uh, rather despite Paul's ability to give great speeches and to go toe-to-toe with their best debaters. And so he comes to Corinth next, and he determined when he came to Corinth that he wasn't going to even to start down that road. Now, there was no sin in doing what he did in Athens. But here he, he sees that the word translated here as eloquence and wisdom in, uh, in verse 1 there indicate skill at public speaking and at displaying one's mental sharpness. And he just wasn't interested in doing that when he came to Corinth. The things ordained in 
uh, or the, rather were admired in Greek and especially Corinthian culture were eloquence and wise sounding speech and Paul determined when I come to Corinth I'm not going to bother he determined to take another approach because he wasn't interested in his own glory or being praised as a great orator but only in the glory of God through the salvation of his people Paul did not approach the people of Corinth as an orator. Instead, number two, he concentrated on the proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified. Verse two, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Years ago, I was going door to door in Sparta, Illinois, with a retired minister, Jim McMahon. In fact, the first time I met Steve... I was with Jim McMahon, and they were uh, joking together about how Steve is McMahon and Jim is McMahon. He's an H-O-N McMahon, and Steve's H-A-N McMahon. Uh, That's stuck in my head for years. Well, Jim and I went around door-to-door in Sparta when I was the new pastor there, and he would introduce me to people as the new pastor of the RP Church, and, and we would share the gospel with people. If someone was a believer, we would get into deeper things. But the main aim here was sharing the gospel when we came across people who didn't know it or didn't believe it. One time there was a man who wanted to debate us on a term in the Old Testament. He had a bee in his bonnet about something he thought the Bible really meant and had to do with... with uh, the serpent in the Garden of Eden. and Now, Jim is a way more proficient scholar of Hebrew than I am. I was actually telling our brothers yesterday, we got to talking a little bit about Jim McMahon, and, and uh, I remember the time when he would, had an illness, but wasn't feeling well, he was actually going through chemotherapy, and he didn't have a lot of energy, and he confessed to me that he was reading the Psalms, in English. <laughs> he was used to reading them in Hebrew, but he just didn't have the, the mental acumen at that time to, to wrestle with the Hebrew. So he was reading them in English. And that's the kind of guy he was, he, or he is. He's a man who loves the biblical languages and especially loves reading the Old Testament in Hebrew, and he has a great deal of skill with Hebrew. And so, you know, I had uh, some basically, probably a basically accurate answer for what this man was, was saying. Uh, but I thought, well, here, I've got this great Hebrew scholar next to me. I'm just going to defer to Jim. And so I sort of nodded in his direction, gestured at him. And I expected he's going to tell the guy, uh, uh, that interpretation is just wrong. The, here, the, the Hebrew word here is nakash and what it means. And that would just be impossible for this man's interpretation would be impossible based on the Hebrew text. Jim absolutely ignored the question. <laughs> he kept coming back to the atoning death of Jesus Christ and this man's need for a savior. Like Paul, he had determined that these other things are certainly appropriate for discussion among believers, but to this apparent unbeliever, he was not going to know anything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That message of the cross 
which is folly to the natural man. It may be foolish to a man in his sins, but for those who are being saved, those whom the Holy Spirit is working in, it is Christ himself we saw before, Paul said. It is the wisdom and the power of God. And so that's what Paul proclaimed. He says, I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As we noted before, Paul came to Corinth as a herald from King Jesus, declaring the proclamation from the king's throne. He wasn't there to use persuasive speech to convince people to obey the king, but saying, here's what the king says. He let the message, which has its own power by God's grace, do its work. Now Paul, no doubt, proclaimed the whole counsel of God in his time in Corinth to the Corinthian brethren. But when he preached publicly to those who were as yet lost, he declared the basic, the clear, the unadulterated gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Only by Christ's atoning death can any fallen man or woman be reconciled to our Creator. And so Paul concentrated on preaching Christ crucified. Well, third, because Paul's desire was for the glory of God and not his own glory, because he wanted people to trust in the power of God and not human wisdom, he was not ashamed to preach Christ from a position that appeared weak, a position of weakness. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. We might be tempted to think that Paul was terribly discouraged after so many trials and tribulations in Macedonia, after so much effort spent in Athens with apparently not a lot of result as we would count it. But no, Paul would only have been discouraged by those things if he was actually worried about the cost to himself the cost in safety, the cost in comfort and health, the reputation. But he cared foremost about the glory of God. So he wasn't ashamed to appear weak, to seem ineloquent, not to fit the standards of the culture before the Corinthians. He wasn't ashamed to handle God's word with fear and trembling. It is a fearful thing to handle God's word. And again, so talking with the Visitation Committee yesterday, we were talking about what a a profound thing it is and how preachers of the Word are held doubly accountable. Because God forbid that I would teach you something that He hasn't taught. It's a fearful thing to be entrusted to proclaim God's message to the world. And God holds those He has called to preaching office accountable for that, for how they present his message. And so certainly Paul had fear and trembling. It's appropriate to preach God's word with boldness before men. It is God's word and it must be heeded. That's what he said back in in verse 1. It's the testimony of God. It's not Paul's testimony. It's God's testimony. He's acting like a herald again. Here's what the king says. People listen to the king. But particularly in a place like Corinth, where grand oratory and bold speech was valued, Paul actually made the point not to hide 
his own weaknesses. And his fear and his trembling in the handling of God's word. He was not ashamed of the simple message of Christ crucified. As he states in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Paul was not ashamed to preach the gospel from a position of weakness. Number four, that the Corinthians might trust the power of God rather than human wisdom. Paul did not preach the gospel as a Greek-style debater, a rhetorician. The first part of verse 4, in my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. Much as he refused to use the flowery style of speech of the great orators, Paul was not interested in using the wise-seeming style of rhetoric used by the professional debaters. Just as great orators, speech makers were, were acclaimed, so were the great debaters. And sometimes they overlapped, it's just that the goal in, in the grand oratory and the goal in the debate were slightly different. Other great public recreation, or another great public recreation, was uh, going to hear the debaters. In Greek society in ancient times, wealthy people or groups of people would pool their money together and they would pay for what was called a symposium. We still sometimes hear of people having a symposium. It sounds really profound, doesn't it? One time I was invited to speak at a symposium, they called it. And it was just another word for a conference at that point. Um, but literally, in, in ancient times, symposium means drinking together. So it was a drinking party, but it wasn't like a wild drinking party. Uh, usually what would happen was a feast was held, and then the guests would drink wine together while listening to philosophers and scholars or lawyers debate. Paul had a desire, or he had no desire, I should say, to win arguments for the sake of public prestige. He wasn't engaging in that which they considered this fun pastime. He simply wanted to proclaim the message of the cross and trust the message to do its work. So he did not preach the gospel like a Greek debater. Rather, number five, he preached the gospel empowered by the Holy Spirit. Verse four, in my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, one thing that means is that as we read of happening, and when we read the, the book of Acts, we read about the ministry and the lives of the apostles, the Lord gave the apostles, Paul included, miracles to confirm that they were speaking for God. And this is something God does, especially when he's instituting a particular covenant. And uh, we see this throughout Scripture, that God attests that people are speaking for him. But then once uh, now we have the New Testament, uh, we don't need these grand proofs because the writers of the New Testament, the endorsers of the New Testament, are attested to by those proofs that God gave. So we should heed God's written word. But Paul had miracles that demonstrated he was not just somebody making stuff up. He was not some loon on the street corner uh, shouting things that he hoped people would listen to. 
But he was speaking for God, and God confirmed it with miracles. The Corinthian brethren should be able to remember that those kinds of things happened. They got that they had that kind of confirmation from God that Paul was to be taken seriously as a true apostle. But this also refers to the fact that the Holy Spirit empowers the very preaching of the gospel, faithful preaching of the gospel. We don't see those kinds of miracles today, typically. They're not beyond God's ability to do. It's just that it's not how he confirms his word today. But he still empowers the preaching of the gospel. I've spoken of the message having its own power. That's not because your words are mine or the Apostle Paul's have some kind of might in themselves. We're not uh, name it and claim it word of faith people here say that just because I speak something and I'm made in the image of God that that makes it so. No. Ink on a page has no power either. But rather, God the Holy Spirit empowers the gospel as his chosen means to save sinners. So Paul preached the gospel empowered by the Holy Spirit. So our exhortation today, God's exhortation for you, have faith in the power of God and not the wisdom of men. It's fine to be well-spoken, to be eloquent, to be a good speaker, but don't get wrapped up in that. The message of the cross empowered by the Holy Spirit is what actually counts, not showing how smart or well-educated you can sound. When I share with you, for example, sometimes in a sermon, a Greek term or a Hebrew term or grammar, I'm not doing that to look intelligent. God forbid, God preserve me from showing off or glorifying myself, not to mention, as I just was telling you about Jim McBain, uh, there are people who are much better scholars of biblical languages than I am. But I do those kinds of things simply to show you, uh, so you can know that I did the hard work, for one thing, of wrestling with God's Word, so that you can have reasonable assurance that I'm not misleading you. Of course, I'm digging into deeper things, what Paul will later call the solid food doctrine. But when sharing that milk of the gospel with the lost, just trust the simple message of Christ and Him crucified. That we are sinners in need of a Savior. And that God came in the person of Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for the sins of all who trust in Him. Believe and trust that message to do its work. You need not be a trained public speaker or a seminary graduate to do that. As long as you communicate the gospel accurately, it has its own power. Remember, the message of the cross may be foolishness to those who are perishing, so you'll get rejected. People will think you're an idiot. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. God the Holy Spirit empowers that message. If you proclaim it accurately, He will do the rest. I think it was Martin Luther who used to say to his students, you can't get the gospel to people's hearts, but you can get it to their ears. The rest of it's the Holy Spirit's business. If you proclaim it accurately, he will do the rest of the work in the hearts of the men and women around you. Rely on that power, not on your own strength. 
It's not about showing that you can win an argument. Oh, how many things, uh, arguments I wish I could go back and change the way that I acted or spoke to people. Because it wasn't about showing that I was right, it was about showing Christ. It's about humbly presenting the gospel accurately. Do not be ashamed, therefore, to present the gospel, the true gospel, from a position that may appear weak to others, as mankind judges such things. Handle that word seriously and with care, but fear the Lord and not what man thinks of you. For the gospel is God's testimony. As you proclaim it, trust in the power of God. Well, let's pray. Lord, let us not put our confidence in human wisdom, but in your power. May we preach your gospel truly and accurately to the lost, not fearing what they will think of us, but fearing you, knowing that you empower the gospel to save your people. As we pray these things in the name of the one who was crucified for us, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.